Welcome to Occupations, the podcast, where we discuss what it's like to hold specific jobs. Occupations is brought to you by LotsOfMaps.com, where you fulfill your vintage map gifting needs. Visit LotsOfMaps.com. Hello again. Andy Jaglins are here for Occupations, where we learn about people's jobs and the fun jobs that they have and uh, uh, how they got them and how you might be interested in getting involved if you need to and and what it takes to do that job. Um, I would just want to say we've been going for six months now and uh, total success. Everyone seems to be enjoying the series and we hope that you enjoy it as well. Today I'm here with Sarah Laughlin and she is a social service advocate for the state of Massachusetts and she will tell you more what that means after she says hello. Hey, it's Sarah. (laughs) (laughs) Hey, Andy. It is Sarah. It is. Thanks for Welcome. having me. Welcome. Thank, Thank you. you. Um, so what is a social service advocate? Sure. And so I work for the Committee for Public Counsel Services, or in plainer terms, the Public Defender's Office. Um, so a social service advocate is a social work position within the Public Defender's Office. So I work as a part of a client's criminal defense team when they have an open criminal case. Um, and so my my role as a social work position is to really support them in three ways. Um, One, with connecting them to resources, whether they're in custody or in the community. Two, is to be just a general emotional support through the stress of having an open case. And then three, to be a court-facing advocate. So providing whether it's written or verbal testimony to the court in support of my client. Got it, got it. Oh, that's excellent. How long have you been in this position so far? So I've actually only been in this position for about a year, although I did work there as an intern when I was in uh, getting my master's in social work a few years ago. So my second year with the organization, Very but good. first first okay. full year working with And them. I know you've got a, a quite a history with the prison system and, yeah. uh, and, and social services as well, and we'll get into that in a little bit. What drew you to the idea of helping those within the prison system how old were you at the time and and was there a a specific incident or was there Mm. just something that that sort of drew you to that? It's been really interesting. I've been asked this question a number of times and I find the answers unfolding the more I go both into my career and the more I learn about myself and my own mental health. And so it's been something I've been really honed in on since I was a teenager, like 15, 16 years old. I remember wanting to work in a prison. Um, specifically wanting to work with incarcerated folks in custody. And in hindsight, I think a lot of that has been impacted by having people in my own life who have struggled with mental health issues, who have struggled with violence, who have caused harm without malice. And seeing that up close and personal and wanting to find a way to help advocate for people that are in those positions. Um, So I think there's a lot of personal experience. And then as I've gotten more and more into the subject matter and learned more and more about the prison system and the prison industrial complex and spent time in those spaces. It's just kind of fortified that passion for doing that work. Now, I know mental health is finally starting to get its finally, yeah, in, finally. in this world. Yeah. And it's been uh, long overdue, mm-hmm. clearly, and in a lot of different areas. Yeah, And uh, prison system is one that I'm not sure everybody really thought about mm-hmm. um, as we think about our ourselves mm-hmm. um, and uh, and functioning people within a society, but those that are having trouble functioning in that society may need those services even yeah. more, right? Yeah, absolutely. And like you said, I think we're having a slow, slow, slow coming to of just how crucial and important mental health support is. And it's interesting with, with the prison system, I think there's been a big shift in the last 10, 15, 20 years because part of how prisons operate is that they're intentionally built to be hidden from the public eye. They're intentionally built to separate people. They're often in rural communities where it's hard to access, hard to visit, um, hard to even communicate with the folks that are on the inside. And so it's kind of a hidden in plain view, something that we're aware of, but you just drive by and see bricks and barbed wire. In fact, interestingly enough, I grew up in Maynard, Massachusetts and Concord, Massachusetts, which is 10 minutes away. There's a rotary where you go past MCI Concord. And again, it's just a big brick building with barbed wires and there's a whole community of thousands of incarcerated people inside, but you never think about it when you drive by. 
Um, so it's very intentionally built to be hidden, but I think there's been a big shift in the last, again, 10, 15, 20 years of the stories from the inside coming to, through to the outside. I think that's happened through media, obviously, social media. I think that's happened through music. That's been a big pathway of learning for me, art, music, and literature from folks who have lived experience. And again, coming more and more to the public eye as we have more access to what's actually happening on the inside. That's well put. Uh, no, no question, creativity sparks a whole different sense yeah. and a whole different side of people, for sure. Mm-hmm. That's for sure. Mm-hmm. We clearly live in a state that is progressive in these areas. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, being a blue state, being a, a a state that seems to understand that people need help mm-hmm. in a lot of ways. Yeah. Uh, I know we're blessed to be living in the, in this type of state. Absolutely. Is the rest of the country starting to shift this way or are we just way ahead of the curve here in Massachusetts? It's interesting. There are definitely pockets of the country that are shifting these ways. There's different communities, be it um, in California and in Oakland, um, be it in Chicago and New York has pockets that are really moving this way. An interesting answer to that question is that while we are blue state and while we do have progressive politics, we have a very different prison system than, say, there is in Mississippi or in Alabama. And I would never argue that. And yet there's still pretty insidious ways that our system works that through working in the system, through being in, in prisons and jails, I've seen that some of some of our progressive policies are very performative and not really followed through with or acted upon. So I think that's a complicated and a complex and a, and a murky topic. But in terms of the rest of the country, I think there's pockets where this is happening, but there's definitely large pockets where it's being neglected. So are you saying that there are, and, and obviously you work for Massachusetts, yeah. you don't work for Mississippi, and yeah. you may not know, mm-hmm. understand Mississippi. Uh, are there still prison systems? There are no social workers for, for prisoners. Absolutely. There's even just my role as a as a social service advocate or as a social worker being part of the criminal defense team. It's a model of defense that's called um, holistic defense, which actually was founded by the Bronx defenders in New York. They kind of pioneered this idea of a team being behind a defendant. So not just an attorney, but having experts, having a clinician or a mental health counselor, having folks in the community that work with organizations, having an investigator, having a social worker. So this model of a holistic team that is this wraparound comprehensive support, they pioneered it. Even in Massachusetts, it's something that's relatively recent. And so in my office, for example, it's a position that didn't exist until relatively recently. And even now, while it is there, and I'm glad it's there, In my office right now, for example, I believe we have 18 attorneys and we have two social workers. And so in a perfect world, and in in my view, I'm biased as a social worker, but in my view, I think every single person who's navigating an open case, it's an immense interruption in your life. It's an immense mental stressor, and it can have huge consequences on your well-being and your family and community's well-being. I think everyone deserves and needs a social worker, and yet right now, with the ratio that we have, we're probably on about 15% of the cases that come through our office, 20% of the cases that come through our office. I'm assuming you're showing potentially some good results. I imagine yeah. the the better the results, the more chance that more funds will be put towards this and, and realize that there's a gold at the end of the, the rainbow. Exactly, yeah. Um, That's definitely the goal to show the impact it has on the clients and on outcomes it's interesting because in our job we don't really measure success by the legal outcome unfortunately because it's a system that's stacked against our defendants and so it's not the most accurate way to showcase something has been effective or helpful it's really about clients satisfaction and how clients feel represented and in that way it has had a really strong impact not that it hasn't impacted folks criminal cases but we really try to measure impact and effectiveness by how a client feels represented at the end of the day. And I think having a team behind them makes a huge difference. Well, I would, I would hope to think that the people that are looking mm-hmm. at your work and what the position has in social work in general is not looking at it as a win-loss yeah. thing. I would imagine exactly. that they're, they're looking deeper into that, I hope. Yeah, I, hope. I absolutely yeah. hope, yeah. All right, so let's get into the job itself. Yeah. So you, you represent uh, someone who uh, has not gone to trial yet typically. Mm-hmm. 
And by the way, what offices do? What, sure. Is there a particular uh, yeah, office? Yeah, so that you work I'm in? in the Boston trial unit. So I work specifically in Suffolk County and um, down out of downtown Boston as our office. But for okay. an, and it's adults as well. Um, that's important Strictly to adults. know. Okay. Strictly adults, folks with open criminal cases who have not yet resolved the matter by trial or plea. Very good. And how do they determine whether somebody gets a social worker or doesn't? That comes in through referrals from our attorneys, actually. And so the attorneys kind of have full autonomy when they get a case, when they initially meet with or interact or communicate with the client to decide if they want to pull in a social worker based off of what things might be emerging from mental health issues to substance use needs to general emotional support to different type of advocacy or resources they could use. And so our attorneys entirely make that decision. And it's strictly public defended. So it yeah. wouldn't it, you wouldn't be a private attorney that could come to use your services as well. No. As well. So I work yes. specifically for the state. And then for those that aren't aware, public defense is only available to folks who are indigent, which just means they live in poverty, so aren't able to afford representation. They have the right to be assigned representation. So a client will come in, they will be arraigned, their lawyer may see something that needs to be addressed mm-hmm. in that particular person, and they say, let's let's call up Sarah and yeah. see what she can do to help to find the resources and or to help herself. Give me an example of some of the things that you might offer. Yeah, absolutely. And so it can be everything from When I think about resources, it can be everything from helping our clients get identification. That's a big one because you might be surprised, but a lot of folks in the process of being arrested, being in custody, navigating the system, lose a lot of their documentation, their social security card, any form of birth certificate or ID. So getting documentation, helping folks get their driver license, helping folks apply to jobs or practice interviewing skills. Um, Sometimes it's, it's really basic resources and needs like helping folks find access to food, um, shelter. Housing is a huge, huge, huge need. A lot of our clients navigate homelessness. And so food and shelter, clothing, also mental health resources. So helping folks get connected, whether it's through individual therapy, whether it's through group therapy, whether it's finding a community organization where they can get a caseworker that can kind of help them manage those different aspects of independent living. So resources is really kind of widespread and can be whatever the client brings to us and says, this is an obstacle in the way of me living the life that I would like to live, feeling healthy and feeling supported and feeling a part of the community. Another big part of it is being almost like a crisis counselor for folks, being an emotional support throughout the process. I can't tell you how many clients I have that when part of an intake process is asking about support system, like who friends, family, peers, community, who do you lean on? And I can't tell you how many clients, when we get to that question, say, I, I actually don't have anyone I can name. It's it's you and my attorney. You know, I, I have a client that I visited with who's in custody. I visited with him the other day, and it was his birthday. And I said, happy birthday. And have you talked to anyone today? And he's been in custody for two years and said, I haven't got a single phone call in two years. So, no, I, I haven't got a happy birthday. Thanks for saying happy birthday to mm. me. Um, And so being just a person who's in your corner, being a person who sits in the courtroom with you that you can look out into the crowd and see a face there that's on your side, being someone you can call the night before trial and vent to or cry to or get frustrated with, um, being an emotional support is a huge, huge part of it. Um, And then the advocacy part too. So another big role of mine um, and a part I love because I'm a really avid writer and I, I love storytelling and I think it's a really powerful tool in change and creating change um, is spending time with our clients, learning their stories, learning to contextualize them as a human being outside of this alleged moment and helping share that information with the court. That's terrific. Let's talk about your day to day. Yeah. So uh, it sounds like no two days are the same. Yeah, that's something I love about it. It's definitely a job where no two days are the same. I would say that a little less than half of the time I'm in the office and that time is usually documentation or meetings with attorneys or other social workers in the office or making phone calls and sending in referrals. But a lot of the time is in the field. So a lot of my time is in court with clients. A lot of my time is visiting clients who are incarcerated in various jails and prisons in Massachusetts. A lot of my time is 
being in community with clients. I, I ended my day today with a porch meeting with one of my clients. We sat on her porch in Dorchester for about an hour and had our meeting in that way and talked about her various needs in that way. And so the days are all very different, which I really enjoy. It makes it kind of feel novel and interesting and fascinating to try to meet people where they're at in different ways. Yeah. So you get up in the morning and how do you, you know, I, I brought up the yeah. scenario that uh, somebody threw up the bat signal to get yeah. Sarah in, <laughs> involved, yeah. but how, how does that work? Take us through a, a, a typical, and I know there probably yeah. is no such thing as a typical, yeah. but, but take us through a typical, like an example, of an a example day. of a, a day or, or even a particular client or, yeah. or something along the lines of that. Yeah. Like I can walk you through today actually, cause I think it was all over the place in a beautiful way that kind of demonstrates the job. I started the job in one court with one client. Um, myself and her attorney picked her up in the morning because she doesn't have, she has some mental health issues and obstacles that make public transit not a safe option for her. So very, again, like jumps jumping into the community with our clients. Started by picking up our client, driving to court with her. Started in one court when that finished. Walked over to another court to meet with another client who had a pretrial hearing that was a hearing where I was there for just kind of general support to get the next steps as we move towards trial a couple of weeks out from now. Then I went back over to my office to kind of do some documentation about the morning and I got two new referrals. So two new clients that have different ways that they need support. And so phone calls to those clients, they happen to be in the community. So phone calls to those clients to set up that initial meeting, stopping by the attorney's offices to kind of chat about more about what they've experienced and what they've observed so far in their interactions with clients. After that, like I said, I, I headed over to Dorchester to meet with a client at her home. Again, another client that trying to really make our services accessible. My office is lovely and it's easy for me because it's right, you know, it's in, right by downtown crossing. It's kind of near the financial district. It's a beautiful office. It's not the most accept accessible for our clients. Um, and for a lot of reasons, whether it's transportation, finances, comfort, safety, I try to meet with people wherever feels the best for them. And so ended the day sitting on a porch with the client and doing our meeting outside of her home because that felt like the best place. For her to do it and so today was a great example of kind of just from court to meeting with clients in the community to getting new referrals and convening in the office being in a lot of different directions in a really beautiful way it sounds like it's kind of no you know whatever it takes kind mm -hmm. of uh, uh, an attitude that you have which is which is really lovely as far as your resources now you mm -hmm. probably were given a list of places that mm -hmm. that were there but are you doing research to try to find new and improved ways of doing things a new you ever get a client who's just their resource needs uh, you've never experienced before and now you got to get on yeah. on google and see what you can find or go into the community do you ever go into the communities and try to find resources within the community that your clients live in or you know yeah i i think it's important to note that i'm a transplant to boston and so i've been there for 10 years now which is wild to say but I'm not from Boston, and so it's not my city in the way that I know its ins and outs as someone who was born and raised there would. And so a lot of my job and just my life living there for the past decade has been trying to get to understand and know the neighborhoods that I'm in, the resources that are available, the community organizations. That absolutely comes up in a scenario you shared where someone might have a need that is, com whether it's completely new to me or there's different aspects that make it... Uh, interact differently than prior similar cases before where I need to find a new type of resource. Um, and I feel really lucky that there's a good network of other social workers and we lean on each other a lot. And so across, we kind of have a Northeast region that we work together. We email and call each other a lot to say, does anyone know of good resources for this scenario? Does, has anyone had experience with this before? Does anyone have an in somewhere of someone you trust in a program that can be a good help because something that I've noticed that's really difficult is while there is a growing interest and awareness of how serious mental health is, it's as someone who's formerly worked in clinical roles as a therapist, as a substance use counselor, it's always wildly understaffed and underpaid. And so it's a complicated thing because there could always be more resources. And then on top of that, a really difficult layer is that 
as a social worker myself, to be quite plain and transparent, even within my field, there's a limited amount of folks who understand the, the specific layering of what it's like to be system involved. And so a therapist for someone who has an experience incarceration is very different than a therapist for someone who has. Um, a program for someone who's navigating conditions of a lot of our clients, even though they haven't been sentenced yet or convicted of anything, they navigate various conditions to be in the community, whether it's a GPS monitor, whether it's having to participate in mental health programming, whether it's doing anger management classes or, or drug screens. And a lot of programs and existing resources don't understand the specific pressures and complications of navigating those spaces with an open criminal case. And so I found that sometimes a resource pool, which is already has a lot of pressure on it, can find it feels even smaller when I think about folks who have the awareness, ability, competency of working specifically with people who've been incarcerated. Yeah, you need specialists for certain yeah, certain because it is yeah. something that I also think is really important to say is I don't have lived experience of incarceration and I pray that I never do. But I think that's something that we're really, really lacking, too, in terms of treatment and support is folks who have lived experience should be at the center of this because no one understands the unique needs, pressures and obstacles better than someone who's navigated through it themselves. Sure. And so that's something that I'm always trying to find. And it's difficult to find. Like, yeah. are there therapists, clinicians, programs, anger management programs, like, et cetera, where people have been incarcerated, people have been in custody themselves, people have navigated this system and will understand it in a different way. Yep. Lotsofmaps.com. Vintage, local, national, and world maps for an affordable price. 99% of our maps are $25 or less. Great as gifts. Frame them or put them under glass for your home, vacation home, or as a memory of a special place. Lotsofmaps.com. So, Sarah, you must see some heartbreaking circumstances that some of these clients of yours are going through, have gone through, and obviously your job is to help, which is an amazing, amazing job to be able to have that much effect on someone's life in a positive way. How do you, you personally deal with uh, the heart. And I imagine there's some where the end uh, is not always a happy situation either, where uh, I would assume some of your clients go to go away to prison. Mm-hmm. How do you deal with that part of the job? Because there's, there's got to be sadness in there. Lord knows you probably have some great days where, mm-hmm. Absolutely. where yeah. you're, you feel mm-hmm. like you're really having an effect and that must make you feel really good. But mm-hmm. how do you deal with those bad days or the the bad situations that, and I imagine yeah. that there's probably, there's a lot of sadness probably just coming from the situation that some of these folks are in before yeah. the criminal charges have even been brought. Absolutely. So how do you deal with that aspect of it? It is such an immense privilege and honor to share space with people that are navigating these situations, especially people in custody, because they're being very intentionally separated from so many of their supports and so many things they love. And again, for many of our clients, they don't have much else. And so I like take a great amount of responsibility and see it as a great privilege and an honor to be in those spaces and to be witness to to walk beside someone in those moments, to be witness and to their vulnerabilities, to be relied upon. Interestingly enough, my resource of the way I replenish myself, because it's, I don't know if you're allowed to swear in here, but it's fucking heartbreaking work. It's heartbreaking work. Like you're saying, some, some of the situations that our clients are navigating, some of the outcomes, and beyond that, it's unfortunately a profession where you lose a lot of people too. Like that's, by far the hardest part of this and it will never not be the most heartbreaking thing is you lose clients it's fucking heartbreaking and my pool where I draw from when I'm in those spaces when I feel completely helpless like nothing I do matters like I can work my ass off all day and maybe it feels good someone gets out of jail but then they go right back to the same environments and systems and oppressions and obstacles On the days I feel helpless, the place where I've found nourishment is in 
my clients, as strange as that sounds. Before I was doing this work, I worked in prisons in Massachusetts. So I worked at MCI Concord. Interestingly, the one that I drove by all the time as a kid, I ended up, that was the first prison I worked in. Um, and I worked in MCI Norfolk. And Norfolk was really transformative for me because it's uh, a prison, it's a medium security prison, the largest prison in Massachusetts, about 1,500 or so incarcerated men. And half of the population there are lifers, so people serving a life sentence. And there is nothing in this world that substitutes for what it's like to sit across from someone who has been sentenced to die in prison and they show up to that space with joy, with faith, with hope, and with resilience. They show up with ingenuity. They show up with resourcefulness. They, they show up with compassion. And so that, the experiences in the energy and the relationships I built in that space, particularly with lifers, again, people who've been sentenced to die in prison and have had to think about that every single day of their lives, when someone like that is sitting across from you and saying, like, you have a reason to smile, let's be hopeful, let's still find a way to push through this, let's still find things to laugh at, like, let's still find sources of joy. It just like flips, it flipped my world upside down, because it's just like, if this person in this situation can still find something to draw from, I have to, it's my responsibility to, like, I can't sit here and be hopeless and helpless. I'm allowed to feel my emotions. And I can sit in that for a little bit. And I usually do give myself time. I'm a big fan of crying. <laughs> so I do my crying. I do. I'm in therapy. I have really great support system in my own life. I, you know, turn to art. I embrace my emotions. But what I always come back to and what keeps me going back to the job is, again, the, all those people that they're not just incarcerated people. They're names and faces and people that I love. And when I say love, I want to just take a second for that because something that really frustrates me about the social work profession and helping professions is there's a real abrasion to the word love. There's a real fear around the word love of what that means about boundaries and getting over-involved and pouring too much of ourselves into the work. And of course, I don't mean love like a romantic love or a familial love. I mean, love is in, I look at these people and they're, they're my community. These are people that I care about their well-being, and I see myself in them and them and me. And so I love my clients and I care about them so much. And that's, that's where I draw from when I think about all the names, all the faces, all the people. And so like this fall, I, I lost a client, a, a client of mine was killed. Um, he was shot and he was a young client. He was a client that I had worked with for a long time and that I'd built a really beautiful relationship with. And I just cared about him a lot. He was a client that his day-to-day -day life was one of those heartbreaking ones. Like I would do home visits while he was, he was on house arrest for a while and I would do home visits and the home visits were enough to just steal your breath for the entire day. I would go home after those visits and sit on my couch and cry because what his life looked like while he was alive was so painful. And so then when he was killed, it took everything out of me. I called out of work, I think for three days in a row. I just sat on my couch and I mourned and I grieved. Um, and it's still a grieving process. I think about him all the time. I always give him little shouts out when he comes to mind. I, I just like put some energy into the atmosphere for him. But what brought me back the next week, like uh, to work on Monday after that was because there's still people that I love that are sitting in cages in the same way that those people find energy to wake up every day and to keep having faith that someday maybe their circumstance will change. I have no right to not like it's my responsibility to show up and to find that energy to keep going. Well, I, I imagine it's hard. Yeah, I, I would think it would be hard for you to accept the fact that you can't fix 100 yeah. percent of the issues. And yeah. so how do you psych yourself down? Yeah, I just made up a whole yeah. new term. You psych yourself down to say, I'm looking for a small step here or I'm looking for a little win. Yeah. Um, because I would imagine even some of the clients, sometimes they reject your services full, fully. Yeah. Is that oh, true? Uh, yeah. So do you, f even even if you walked away from someone like, or they walked away from you, yeah. do you feel like you can at least maybe hope that they learn something, one little thing, you know, that kind of thing? How, how do you, yeah. so how do you compartmentalize that, the fact that you're, 
you can't 100% change them. 100%. Not saying that you can't. Yeah. Because I know (laughs) you certainly probably try. But how do you accept the fact that you can't just work on this one person 100% of your time and... Yeah. You know, fix their problems. All the time would, I say yeah. in my dream world, like my dream world of social work, my caseload would be like five people. It would be like mm. five people and I would get to give them so much time and attention and love and focus. It's not. It's like you get like 50 people. And so, but there's a really helpful phrasing that I've carried with me that my supervisor in this job gave to me when I entered. We kind of have, we have very similar beliefs. We're both abolitionists, meaning we don't, we don't believe prison or policing is a way to find justice or is a way to uh, help support folks through harm or hold them accountable. And yet we're working within the system. We're working for the state. We're working in the courts. We're working in the jails. And so something she gave to me early on is she said, we're doing harm reduction work. We're not solving the problem. We're not changing things. At the end of the day, we're just trying our best to reduce harm. And so a lot of times that looks like again not a not like a great outcome knowing people are stuck in these cycles that heartbreaking thing of no matter what i do this person is still i i can't change the world i'm one person this person still is up against all these systemic issues all these environmental issues so harm reduction has been really helpful for me in understanding that sometimes all i'm going to do is sit with someone for an hour and hopefully be a distraction for one hour and help them forget that they're incarcerated or be the person that says happy birthday when they haven't heard it yet. Or be like, I had a client the other day who right now she's, she's incarcerated, but she has been navigating mental serious mental health issues while incarcerated. So they moved her into a hospital setting. Um, So I visited her at the hospital the other day and I brought her jelly beans And my client cried. She sobbed when I gave her jelly beans. And she said, this is the nicest thing anyone's done for me in a long time. This is the best day I've had in weeks because I brought her jelly beans. And so with her, when I left that meeting, I I called her attorney and we both said the odds are stacked against her. It's a horrific situation. And she's in a horrible spot where there's not a ton we can constructively do. And yet... For her, harm reduction, harm reduction, harm reduction. To sit with her and eat some jelly beans with her and get us a laugh and a smile out of her. At the end of the day, I'm not changing her life in the ways that I so wish I could. Not changing the circumstances, not changing the resources available to her. But like, even if it's just giving someone one hour where they feel seen, as cheesy as that sounds, that's where I have to dig into. And like, that's where I have to find kind of like fulfillment and and motivation in the job is just trying to reduce harm because I'm one person and we're one organization and these people are against a sea, a sea of things that are trying to hold them down. Not to take anything away from the magic of jelly beans, yeah. but it sounds to me like... It's more than jelly beans, you know what I mean? You, you, were, the, you were the thing that, that she cried about. Yeah, that... The that, jelly yeah. beans just was the... The jelly beans is the is the someone is the tangible like the tangible someone maybe cares about me in this moment and i didn't i haven't felt that way in a a while like batman has his utility belt Mm -hmm. would you you carry like jelly beans in one of your pockets (laughs) it's so funny you say that though because one of the things that i get lovingly teased about is that i really try whenever i meet with clients i try to include food Part of that is selfish because I love food and I love to eat and it's a source of a lot of joy and connection for me. Like food is such a place where I feel pleasure and joy and I feel connected to the people around me. And so it's and it's almost like an incentive too. sometimes I'm like, meet with me, I'll buy you lunch. (laughs) Um, (laughs) And so I it's like lovingly teased about that. I'm always trying to feed our clients. But it's like for me, it's it's like a love language. It's a symbol of care. It's also just a peace offering because a lot of our clients are don't have steady access to food. And so it's like I don't sometimes some resources is hard to ask about and it's humbling or embarrassing or shameful for people to ask about. So offer them without them asking. I won't lie. I do love to use food as as a way to get the meeting to happen. And it's just a way to love on our clients a little bit extra. <laughs> That's great. Yeah. I want to um, just touch on your 
path to where you are today? Because yeah. I know you've got quite a history with with uh, with the prison system and all of that. So give us a give us a, a little roundup of uh, of the education of Sarah Laughlin. Yeah, sure, I'd love to. Um, so I did my undergrad at UMass Amherst, and along with every other member of my family, basically. <laughs> um, and I studied sociology and English there. There's always been, again, like a really strong tie between my activist side and my art side. Like I see those as so inherently bound together. And artists have been a lot of what's propelled me into this career. So started at UMass Amherst and always knew I wanted to work with incarcerated folks. My first job out of college, I worked at a residential program in Framingham or in Natick. And um, I worked with, it was young men that were in a sexualized behaviors program. And so it was teenagers 12 to 18 who had committed various sexual offenses and needed support in navigating their boundaries and navigating their mental health issues, et cetera. That was such a beautiful entryway to my career because it really helped root, it helped root me in switching up what's wrong with you to what's happened to you because it's so clear it's a lot easier for us to make tangible with children than with adults when someone is 12 13 14 years old and they're doing something it's very simple to recognize this is a learned behavior how do you know about this how have you how do you know to act this way where is this coming from and so it was a really important place for me to see this strong tie between how someone is treated as a child versus how they're treating others in their early development it was also huge for me because I am a survivor of sexual assault. And so it was kind of facing me right up against my triggers of being with people that had caused sexual harm to others. And as complicated as that sounds, very quickly grew to adore and love them and understand this isn't malicious. This doesn't come from a want to hurt people. This comes from your own pains. Hurt people, hurt people, as the phrase goes. After working in residential programming for a couple of years, I was a counselor in that role. I'm a residential counselor. I moved on to working in the prison system. So I worked in MCI Concord and MCI Norfolk, and I was a substance use counselor. So I worked with an organization that contracted with the Department of Corrections. So I didn't work for the DOC, but was an outside agency that went in and provided services. Um, so I was a substance use counselor and assisted in this program where I was given a caseload of incarcerated men and helped them navigate various issues related to addiction and mental health issues. I was there for a couple years, and I always say that my time there turned me into an abolitionist. I went into that job believing in prison reform, saying we need to make changes with our prison system because of the way that it's operating isn't okay. It's it's discriminatory. It's, it's it has very racist roots. The law and justice isn't applied equitably to all people. And so I went into prison saying, let's change it from the inside out. Very quickly into my time in the prison system, I realized that that wasn't possible. That even treatment in a carceral setting, you're under the thumb of the DOC. So my boss was always the DOC, and there was a lot of ways in which we as a program wanted to provide support and counseling and therapy and resources to clients that the DOC simply said no to. Just to be totally transparent, because I'm very open about this and it's shared information, I was fired from that job. It, it got to the point where there were so many things that I saw that as a bright-eyed, bushy-tailed, <laughs> young, just out of college person, I tried to stand up against and speak out against things I saw as human rights violations, things I saw as really harmful and detrimental and downright abusive to our clients. I would speak up against and I quickly found that got me in trouble and got me ostracized and I ended up getting fired after about two years of being in that role. Um, and so I say that working in the prison turned me into an abolitionist because I hoped that it was possible to change from the inside out, but I quickly found that if you don't adhere to the culture, you're outed, um, you're pushed out. After that, I took a little bit of a step back because I wanted to figure out how to do the work in a sustainable way, in a safe way. I said, I want to do this for the long haul. It's the only thing I want to do with my life and I can't just keep getting fired from every job I have. How do I find a place where I can find people that align with these values, that see it as a strength to stand up against systemic injustices 
and don't see it as something that needs to be punished. So where's my community and what does this look like and how can I make sure I'm healthy? Because that was a really brutal experience to go through. So I worked in healthcare for a little bit, <laughs> um, which is its own <laughs> brutal system in a different way. There's a lot of overlap in the way that pe- marginalized folks are excluded from care um, in the healthcare system as well. Worked in healthcare for a little bit and then found my way back by going back to school. I decided I wanted to go back to school and become a social worker. The initial impetus behind that was that, to be honest, there was a lot of spaces when I was working in the prison that I would try to speak up against something and I was spoken to and regarded as like a young person who didn't have experience and didn't know what they were talking about. And I feel so privileged and lucky to have access to higher education and I think it's really important and powerful. And unfortunately, people take you more seriously when you have stupid letters after your name. Like having these letters that I paid for at the end of my name at the end of the day makes people treat me differently. And it shouldn't be that way. Like, again, lived experience should be seen just as much as expertise as me having MSW at the end of my name. But unfortunately, people take you differently, respect you differently, and you have more access to positions of power when you have higher education. So I went back to school because I said this can be at least one protective factor to give my voice a little more resonance and have people take me a little more seriously. And of course, it's it's an incredible resource to connect not only to education, but to network with other people that have similar passions. So went back to school, went to Boston College for social work. And in through BC is where I got connected to the public defender's office. I interned with them my first year and just fell in love with the work. I I just fell in love. Again, I, I felt like I got to be with my dream client, my dream demographic, which is folks that are incarcerated but I was going into the jail and then leaving. I wasn't working there 40 hours a week. I wasn't under the rules of the DOC. I had an organization, a state organization that did have some power and influence behind me. Um, So I felt like I could still access my clients, but in a sustainable way and in a way where I had a little more influence. So I loved that. My second year of school, I interned in a community health center. I was a therapist, an outpatient therapist. So I met with people for therapy. I liked that, but I missed my clientele too much. Like I just, there's nothing on this earth I want to do besides work on focus and focus on issues of system impacted people. Um, And so I ended up back at the public defender's office. I graduated um, just last year in 2022 um, with my master's in social work and started a couple weeks after at the public defender's office and I've been there since. And so it's been an interesting combination of residential care working as a substance use counselor, working as a therapist, working in healthcare, and some odd jobs in between that have all kind of layered me back into the role that I'm in now. Amazing. Lotsofmaps.com. Vintage, local, national, and world maps for an affordable price. 99% of our maps are $25 or less. Great as gifts. Frame them or put them under glass for your home, vacation home, or as a memory of a special place. Lotsofmaps.com. All right, so let's talk a little bit about the abolitionist movement. Uh, you mentioned this a couple of times in, in speaking, and I'm curious to find out what that is all about. Now, you've made it very clear that, that you the, the time that you spent working in the, in the prisons, you saw some pretty bad behavior. Mm-hmm. Um, I assume it's, it, it's more widespread than just the prison system. It's probably the... Yeah, yeah they'll just leak yeah. cool legal system in general. So uh, tell me a little bit more about this movement of abolition uh, attached to the prison system or is it the prison system or what is, what is the abolishment again, you know? Yeah, there's there's a number of movements that work together but there's prison abolition specifically which seeks to again target the institutions of prisons and and get rid of the goal long term is to get rid of them entirely. And I think when a lot of people hear abolition they think of anarchy. They think of like burning it down or just going in and opening all the doors and letting all the people run free. And as much as I would like to go open all the doors <laughs> and let everyone out, abolition doesn't mean overnight and it doesn't mean let people be unaccountable. In fact, abolition, prison abolition specifically, is deeply rooted in accountability, but it's recognizing that prison does more harm and doesn't doesn't actually help in the way that it purports it helps in connecting people funneling our energy, our resources, and our money 
into other places, into the mental health field, into community organizations, etc. Um, so prison abolition specifically seeks, seeks to make prisons obsolete, um, make them no longer the way that we respond to harm in our communities and instead take all the money that's funneled into them and put it into other spaces that are actually rehabilitative and actually compassionate and empathetic in the way that they treat people. There's also police abolition. That's a big movement and one that's gained a lot of steam and awareness and notoriety in the last five-ish years or so. And that is a similar idea that police as our way of keeping our community safe doesn't actually work. Um, and we need alternate ways, alternate organizations, alternate groups of people to keep our community safe. All right. So let's look at this two ways. So, uh, and, and like you said, you're, you, you're not looking to open all the prison doors and let everybody out. Uh, it's going to take time to get to that. Mm-hmm. Yeah, we'll, it's we'll, not we'll, we'll address that in a moment, but where will you be satisfied? Mm. Like at what point, what, what is the prison mm. system replaced by? And what, what, give me a little more specifics on, on yeah. what the vision is there uh, to help someone. Can you give me an example of, yeah. of if someone committed a crime, what, what would the steps be there? Yeah, there's this ideology called restorative justice that I am a huge proponent of and I think is a really important one of many alternatives to incarceration. Restorative justice is actually an indigenous practice. And so it's something, it's not creating something new. It's actually getting back to our roots. Like indigenous cultures all over the world have practiced restorative justice. And what restorative justice does is it sees crime as not in between individuals, but crime as the failing of a community. So if someone harms another person, if someone commits a crime, this means that the community has failed we all have contributed to this person getting to the space where they don't have the supports, the resources, um, the stability to be able to be a healthy contributing member of society. And so restorative justice is really beautiful in that the way that it addresses harm, the way it addresses crime, first of all, it includes people, it centers and includes people who've been impacted by harm, survivors of harm. It makes their voices some of the loudest in the room in determining what accountability looks like, what repercussions look like. It also includes folks who have caused harm so that they can share about how they have got to that space before and shed some light on what the path to causing harm is. Because I'm a, I'm a big proponent that, that healthy people don't do evil things. And so when someone does something that we see as heinous or evil, there's usually something underneath that that's gotten them to that space. So RJ, or restorative justice, it, it centers lived experience. It centers both people who've been responsible for harm and people who've caused harm. And as a community, you make decisions and work together and to figure out how to make someone best be able to re-enter society in an effective way. The goal is for them to reconnect with society as soon as possible and in as healthy way as possible. Whereas prison, a lot of the time, is to take someone away for a period of time. It's interesting because our prison system paints that as the punishment. You're sentenced to X amount of years in prison. And yet along with that comes the treatment and the abuse that you endure, the conditions within a prison, which is often ignored. But we're also exposing someone to (laughs) subhuman conditions, living in cages, eating things that's not considered food, not having access to water, hygiene, showers, etc. But anyway, all this is to say. That's more trauma. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. But all this is to say restorative justice really says like, How do we as a community address this? How do we come together and try to get someone the supports that they need? I learned about it when I was working in the prison because in MCI Norfolk, the incarcerated men there had created their own restorative justice groups. Restorative justice is typically run, um, they're called circles and their format is a circle. It's for everyone to be looking at each other and be kind of grounded in the center of that. So in Norfolk, in the I think in 2013 or 14, they established a restorative justice circle that with the specific idea of folks that were older and had spent more time in the system being mentors and guides and supports to younger folks and helping them understand and and be accountable for their actions and also understand where that comes from. So I learned about it in there and then I followed it to the outside. So as wild as this sounds, some of my clients who I had in Norfolk, who were incarcerated at the time, have since been released and took what they were doing on the inside and brought it to the outside. 
And so I had like the absolute privilege of this past year, I had a year long contract working with an organization called the Transformational Prison Project, which is run all by formerly incarcerated men who served a significant amount of time um, in the Massachusetts prison system and have learned these principles, these practice these indigenous principles on the inside and are now bringing it out into the community. I still do that. I've worked with them for a year as a restorative wellness guide, which is essentially a clinical position, helping to support people who are reentering and navigating those restorative justice spaces. I still volunteer with them um, and they work with youth and with adults, both with folks that are incarcerated and reentering. And they address harm in real time by surrounding someone with community support and as a community determining the best ways to hold someone accountable and to move through that harm. Excellent. So are there other nations doing this? Now, I understand there's indigenous populations and in small communities that, that might have this, like a prison system itself. Yeah. Are, are there any other nations doing this? Do you know? There's spaces in the world where it's still tied to that culture, where there hasn't, it hasn't drifted as far from that culture. So like there's a lot of places in South America, there's Central America, Africa that still have a communal response to harm. It's a lot more community-based things are solved within. That's another part of restorative justice is that we want to solve the problem or address the problem in the space where it's happened instead of what you see in our prison system, which is someone is plucked from a community and the the outcome is determined by people they've never interacted with, never seen, and have nothing to do with them and no overlapping identities. Another part of RJ is we solve this in our own community. We solve this in our own neighborhood. So there are a lot of pockets of the world where people are using that format of we solve this within our community in various ways. There are also a lot of pockets in Europe. It's more on the prison reform train, but there are spaces where there's a much larger emphasis in a lot of European prison systems on the rehabilitation part. There's a couple of great documentaries about like Nordic countries and a lot of their prisons are people will joke like they're like hotels. They're, people are given amazing gyms, access to the best therapist, the ability to work, the ability to see their family, just incredible resources because the goal is to for them to come out of prison a, a better and healthier person they went in. So there's there's definitely models around the world of either stronger focus on rehabilitation or stronger focus on community's role in deciding and determining accountability. There's also the opposite. There's also plenty of places where things are done in a, a lot more punitive and abusive manner. Um, but there are definitely, I think, nations and communities that are currently doing things that we could really draw from and learn from. So uh, let's just talk a little bit about how do we get to this point yeah. of what you're talking about abolishing. Now, I'm going to assume that because mental health is being taken more seriously in the United States, in the world, as an example, your job is pushing a little bit into the prison system, that things are changing to some degree already, albeit small. Mm. And small victories yeah. add up for <laughs> sure. I would love to think that this is maybe the start of of some sort of a movement towards at least understanding what that these people are human, first yeah. of all. Yeah. And let's take that as a victory. What do you think the next steps are? I imagine it's not a drastic step. There's going to be one point where there's going to probably be some sort of drastic step. But yeah. how, how do we get to that point, do you think? It's a great question. And I think I want to preface it by saying I'm an ardent abolitionist. And it's something that I've practiced and studied and worked on for many years. And I am far from an expert. And there, it's a it's an ideology that while it's growing in popularity and prominence, folks have been not only have indigenous cultures been doing it, but here in the United States, there's been a really passionate and powerful movement over the last 30 to 40 years that's been led by queer black women within the United States. So like Angela Davis is my queen. That's my everything. She's one of the pioneers of what it looks like to imagine a world without prisons. And there's so many people that have been doing this work for a long time that would have much more concrete and helpful solutions than than I do. And so I want to just give credit to them as the people that have educated my clients and the, the again, the women leading this movement who've educated me and who could answer this question much better. But to answer this question from my lens, something that I get to do in my job that's perhaps my favorite part of my job that I think is really powerful is storytelling. I think that 
unfortunately, most of us don't care about an issue until it happens to us, until it touches our own community. And because of the way our, our legal system is set up, there are certain communities that are not impacted by the system as much as others. And I just want to be very blunt and say along racial lines and along socioeconomic lines, it's a system that disproportionately affects black and brown people and folks that are living in poverty. And of course, all marginalized identities. But I think storytelling is so powerful because for those of us that it hasn't maybe made its way into our family, our friendships, our relationships, our partner, to get to learn the name, the story, and put a face to this can have a huge impact. And so part of my role that I loved is we do something called mitigation packages or disposition letters. And how I describe it to client and anyone else is that the judge and the prosecutor receive your police report and your quarry. So they know your criminal record and they know the alleged details of an event that happened. My job is to paint the entire picture of who you are outside of these pieces of paper, who you are outside of your record and outside of this alleged incident. What are the things that you have navigated throughout your life? What was your childhood like? What's your support system look like? What's your education and employment history? What are your dreams? What are your hopes? What are the things that you're proud of yourself for? What are the places that you feel you need more support? And to really just paint this picture of who this human being is. And unfortunately, to humanize them, to like you said earlier, to make people understand that just because you're impacted by the system, just because you're incarcerated, does not mean that you are subhuman, does not mean you're a second class citizen or person. And so I love the storytelling aspect because I've seen the power that it has. It's been something that I took from my job in the prison and brought forward into my communities, telling the stories of what I saw in there and even more so the beautiful people I met in there. Um, and it's something I get to do in this job now is go to the court go to the prosecutor and to the judge and unfortunately, they don't value or listen to my client in the same way that they listen to me. And so I see it as my responsibility to take like the privilege and power I have as a social worker, as a white woman in that space, as a state employee, the respect that they gave me for those arbitrary letters after my name and to say like, with permission from this beautiful person right here, I'd like to tell you a little more of their story. I want you to, s to see who they are. And you see the impact it has. Not that it's always a huge help. It depends on the prosecutor or the judge that you're working with. But I've, I've seen up close what it looks like when a prosecutor reads a letter of support that a client's child has written for them or a picture that a child has drawn because they don't have the ability to write words yet. Or sees an image of them surrounded by their family and, and all of a sudden realizes that they're part of a community. They're not just an isolated person, but there's all these faces and people that love and care about them or learns about the incredible work that they're doing within their communities, about how they're a swim coach, about how they, you know, volunteer and show up for the people around them, about how they always shovel out all their neighbors' driveways or understands the immense, immense traumas that they've been through because every single person I've ever encountered at this job has been harmed a million times over and has gone through immense traumas. And so takes a second and says, wow, if I had gone through this, I might have similar reactions to the world around me. I might end up in a similar situation. So I love the storytelling aspect. And I think that's, for me, feels like a powerful starting point for abolition is to help humanize, tell the stories and give a face and a name to this so that it can't be some distant problem. But like you see the eyes of someone and you hear their laughter when you think about prison. So you're already starting this process is kind of what I'm, trying, I'm getting back to. Is that you're, yeah. you're definitely humanizing folks. Let me ask you this. Is this a growing field, do you think? Now, it sounds like there's just two of you in this office. Like you said, you're mm. probably overworked probably have too many clients like you said you're only <laughs> touching 15 percent of yeah. of them so i imagine there's there's room for growth do you think it is growing i think it is i think social work in the realm of the legal system and system impacted people i think it's growing and i also am hopeful that an abolitionist or restorative justice lens is growing. And something that gives me hope is I notice our interns give me so much hope because our interns, both our social work interns and our legal interns, 
the tide is moving towards abolition. So it's so much more prominent in the interns that we have in the office than it is with the existing attorneys in our office. It's almost a sense of duh with like the <laughs> shouts out to Gen Z because they're really carrying the team on their back. It's almost a sense of duh, like the 20, 21, 22, 23 year old interns that are coming in are like, of course, why would we believe in this system? It doesn't work. We all know that. Whereas myself and the other folks that are a little bit later in their career or older, it's been a slow learning process for us. And, and I think there's the tide is turning as evidenced by these new and younger people coming in and having a different a different lens and one that aligns with alternatives to incarceration. These interns must remind you a little bit of a young Sarah Laughlin, though. They're they're so cool. And they're so much cooler than young Sarah Laughlin because, <laughs> again, I was like, we're going to reform it. We're going to change it from the inside out. And they're coming in day one like, nope, we got to burn the whole thing down. And I'm like, I love this energy. And so, yeah, I feel a lot of hope in building community with other people that whatever the angle or the lens is, and that's the thing about abolition, too, that's interesting is my approach is a very mental health minded approach, a very trauma based approach is, a again, this this concept that hurt people hurt people. And as restorative justice has taught me and the slogan of the organization Transformational Prison Project that I work with, their slogan is hurt people hurt people, healed people healed people. And so this concept that lived experiences are guidance through this. I have a lot of hope that these folks that are coming in have these fresh eyes to find alternatives alternatives to incarceration, whether it's from the mental health angle or if it's from the fiscal angle. Like we all know we spend so much goddamn money on our prison system and nobody likes that and all our tax dollars. And so even if it's from the fiscal perspective, trying to get people to buy in and say how much money we waste on it, whatever angle it is, I'm seeing more and more people buying in for various reasons, which I really love to see. Great. Yeah. Um, where do you see yourself in five years? Ooh, tough I love question, that question. I know, but yeah. I mean, it's easy to say, sure, still doing this job or or whatever. Mm-hmm. But I mean, let me ask you this: Where do you think the prison system will be in five years, Ooh. and where will your your place in it be? My dream, and I'm going to try to put some energy into it and manifest it, both for me and the prison system. My hope is that the prison system in five years we start to filter folks out of it, and so. We have, as we all are aware, the largest incarcerated population in the world over by a long shot. Um, <laughs> you take like the next 10 countries after us and add them together, you still don't get us. And so I would love to see that number start going down and down and down. Prisons and jails start to close. Those places, again, slowly becoming obsolete by people starting to filter out of them. So in five years, I would love to see less people in the prison system and a lot of those institutions closing. Where I see myself, I love the work that I do. And again, I I can't say it enough. I just feel such a draw to people that are in custody, that are incarcerated, because at the end of the day, they're still going to be there. They're going to keep being there. And even in five years, I got to be honest with myself, I don't believe everyone in prison is going to be out in five years. And so it's like there's going to be people sitting in cages and I want to be able to share space with them. I want even if it's just to make them feel seen, but even more so to broadcast their message out to the world. Like I want to continue to be in those spaces with them. So in five years from now, I still would love a job that I want it to be mostly client facing. I want to have a lot of access to God willing folks that are navigating the system and folks that are in custody. I would love to grow in the storytelling role. Like I would love to do more writing and speaking about these things, find a space that feels appropriate for me to share my own experiences and also like help propel and project the voices of people who've lived that experience. And I love the things that I'm able to do at the place I work. And I would love to continue to seek out like more and more radical and out of the box spaces, more and more communities, whether it's in my nine to five or outside of it, more communities like Transformational Prison Project, more places where people are thinking radically about different alternatives about other ways to hold folks accountable about other ways to address harm. So yeah, five years from now, I want to be doing similar work, but maybe with a little more advocacy that is not just court facing, but public facing. 
so if there are folks that want to get involved that are yeah. interested in your kind of work, yeah, that may be able to volunteer potentially to do some help in in some way, or if there's internships available, you, where would you suggest people turn? Yeah, one thing that I think everybody should do that maybe we aren't all aware of because I wasn't is that. Courts are open to the public. So any one of us has the right and the ability to go sit in any courtroom in Massachusetts and just watch what it's like. I cannot recommend enough going and taking a day and just sitting in a courtroom and watching what happens because it takes about four and a half minutes in there before you see something egregious. And so to just sit and to watch. And again, for, for those of us, if you haven't had the personal experience, why would you ever go to a courtroom? It's a miserable place. I highly recommend all of us going and sitting in courtroom because that's the closest I think you'll be able to get to getting to a prison or a jail. If you have the ability, there are some great organizations where you can volunteer in prisons and jails, whether it's teaching, doing restorative justice programs. If you can get on the inside, great. But even if you can just go sit in a court for a day, watch people be arraigned, watch a trial, how they're spoken to or not even spoken to or regarded Watch just how everything works and how the defendant is regarded. I think that's transformative. And so that's a great start. But then if you would like to kind of pursue this as either a career or a hobby or interest, volunteering is a great way to start. You obviously can go to school to pursue these things or these fields. But there's a lot of incredible organizations in Boston that like I I do want to give a lot of props to. Everything from Transformational Prison Project to Sisters Unchained to Families for Justice as Healing to Fathers Uplift and all of those places that I've just mentioned are places where they're prioritizing and centering lived experience. They're organizations within the greater Boston area where people that have been through the system that have experienced incarceration are holding positions of power, which I think is a really important experience, not just to volunteer in these areas, but to build community with people that have lived it. Again, I think like art is a great into it and so to go to open mics whether it's poetry or music and to go to the communities that are most heavily policed most affected by incarceration and just sit and listen (laughs) sit and listen and observe and then yeah if if, if it becomes a passion like to pursue to step further into how could I whether it's on an attorney side or a mental health counselor or a healthcare worker like if I'm working in a client facing way how can I dig into that passion and build community with other folks that are looking for new and creative and out-of-the-box ways to go? And Sarah, will you uh, please give me a list of the resources, and I will post them on on our Facebook pages and our Instagram pages and our yeah, X, I would love Twitter to. or whatever you yeah I know whatever, whatever we're Twitter is it. these days. <laughs> um, we're going to post it on there so that you can follow up on some of these resources. That I would, would be really that. absolutely. Sarah Laughlin, thank you so much for joining us and. Thank you for educating us in the prison system, in social work, and in mental health and everything else, uh, jelly beans. (laughs) Thank Um, you so much for having me, Andy. And I just, again, I can't say enough, like everything that I'm sharing and all the knowledge I have is regurgitated from my clients and the people that I've been lucky enough to share and build community with. And so I'm very, very, very grateful. And it's such a privilege to do this work. And it's an honor to to share that story somewhere else. So thank you so much for having me. My pleasure. Join us again for another episode of Occupations, the podcast. Hope to see you soon. Thanks. Occupations has been brought to you by lotsofmaps.com. Please follow Occupations, the podcast on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram to find information about our next episode or to see what past episodes are available.